Turkey Call All Access, the official podcast of the National Wild Turkey Federation, brought to you by Nomad Outdoor. Turkey Call All Access is a digital campfire where the host and guests discuss topics of the day, conservation efforts, tips and techniques to better your experience as a field, and share our members' stories. Welcome back, everybody, to this new edition of the Turkey Hall All Access Podcast, the official podcast of the National Wild Turkey Federation, brought to you by Nomad Outdoor. This week, guys, I'm bringing you a, uh, a special event we had here locally in my home state of New Hampshire. Uh, we we had a, a live event, sat down with some, some friends, some past guests. We touched a whole bunch of different subjects. It's a pretty entertaining and, and, and thought-provoking conversation. You will hear from Daniel Vitalis, AJ DeRosa, NWTF storyteller Emily Cram, owner of Flag Hill uh, Distillery and Winery, who hosted us for the evening, uh, Brian Ferguson, all hosted uh, by myself. Uh, we're talking about conservation, the changing face of the hunter-gatherer conservationist, what that looks like, habitat, a whole bunch, guys. And there's there's some really good stuff here. I hope you enjoy it. We're going to play that for you guys there uh, in about 90 seconds. Let's go. Under the visionary leadership of founder Johnny Morris, Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's is leading North America's largest conservation movement. Their partnership with the National Wild Turkey Federation is a match made in heaven for hunters across America. The Save the Habitat, Save the Hunt initiative continues to be a resounding success, with more than $6 million provided for conserving wildlife habitat, recruiting more hunters, and opening more access to hundreds of thousands of acres across the nation. To learn more, go to BassPro.com conservation. Some say a silenced gunshot is the baddest sound out there. At Silencer Central, we have another favorite. It's the sound of silence delivered to your front door. When you buy from Silencer Central, we handle your application, set you up with a free NFA gun trust, and deliver your silencer straight to you. With an average 90-day turnaround time when you use e-forms, buying a silencer is simpler than ever. Visit silencercentral.com and we'll help you get started. Have you been to shop.nwtf.org yet? Well, if not, I invite you to go there now. Again, that's shop.nwtf.org for all the latest and greatest NWTF lifestyle gear. Need a trucker cap? We got you covered. Need a low pro hat? We got you covered there. Guys gear, ladies gear, kids gear, accessories for the pool, for the backyard, for hunting, camping. We got you all there. Shop.nwtf.org. Go there today and get your latest NWTF gear. Want to hear us in the audience for, for those who are here? You good? The, the acoustics are perfect in the fire room, the fireplace room of Flag Hill. It's it's awesome and it's great to be here. Thank you guys for showing up. This is a very intimate uh, setting and occasion, but uh, I will tell you, without um, without pumping too many tires here, you you are sitting in front of a really awesome panel uh, of of conservationists and and, and like minded folks, and almost all of them except Emily, have either been on my podcast, um, Turkey Call All Access podcast, or I've been a guest on their podcast. I think uh, Daniel's recently uh, with the Wild Fed podcast, and AJ and I uh, have done some projects in the past, a Project Upland and Morning Thunder um, brand of the Project Upland um, family. Is that the right term, right? 
So uh, with that, I've said a lot of names for the the listening audience. I'll go around the room here. Emily Cram uh, out of Maine, uh, NWTF Storyteller. She is with the Inland Fisheries and Wildlife. Uh, for Maine, you work at the Wildlife Park. Yes. What, what do you do at the park by, by besides like playing with cool critters? <laughs> uh, it's a little bit of everything for yeah. sure. I'm the assistant superintendent there yeah. and um, dealing a lot of people dynamics in the public and animals. So it's a, a place for injured orphan and human uh, dependent animals to come that cannot be re-released. Mm -hmm. the, uh, so it's a big wild. education center and, yes. and giving value to the resource in the state of Maine yes. in large part. So awesome. Thanks for making the trip down. Uh, AJ DeRosa, the founder of Project Upland, uh, buddy of mine. AJ, thanks for coming. Appreciate you. you. And also, uh, Stratford County Commissioner, uh, Fish and Game Commissioner for the state of New Hampshire. So uh, policy or hand in policy making and uh, putting his money where his mouth is as a conservationist and leaving a legacy. So thanks for joining us. Thanks to you. Yeah, yeah that's right. See, uh, see, COVID. Took over your seat for the record. That's right. I, I, in a prior job, I was I was pretty good at recruiting and, and, and that worked out well at this position, too. So uh, we, we we leveled up with uh, adding uh, AJ DeRosa as a, as a Stratford County Commissioner. And uh, we are we are lucky to have you. I, I debate that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another long traveler from Maine, uh, Daniel Vitalis of the Wildfed uh, television show on Outdoor Channel and the Wildfed podcast, uh, who I just had the pleasure of being on and had a really man. We flowed. I so enjoyed the conversation. I'm glad you're here. Yeah, man. And uh, I feel like this panel speaks to a lot of what we talked about, which is sort of the new demographics and yeah. hunting and uh, kind of see that looking around. It's like, this yeah. isn't the panel of uh, typical hunters that no. you imagine, is it? And that's great, right? That's yeah, that's, that's awesome. like the whole point of this, mm -hmm. right? Um, and at the end of our table, the owner uh, of Flag Hill uh, Distillery and Winery, Brian Ferguson, who uh, was an early guest of the uh, the old Strut, Strut Zone podcast uh, in, when this program was in its infancy. So thanks for hosting us and having us in your home. Yeah, it's exciting. This is, uh, it's going to be fun to hear. It's like a great panel of people. And I'm excited to hear what everyone's got to talk about. Sounds yeah, um, for sure. So everybody here at this table has a, a background in hunting and conservation. Uh, and they're so, they're so varied. There's so many differences amongst the four of you and myself included. And that's what makes us a beautiful thing. And AJ and I have talked about this before. Uh, I think all of us have touched on this at one point or another, this very subject in a kind of a 40,000 foot way is that we all have these different backgrounds, political persuasions, but what we all literally come to this table agreeing upon is our, is our love for the outdoors, conserving it, not preservation, not putting a glass bowl around the resource and, and keeping it for perpetuity, but making sure it stands in perpetuity as a resource to be used by all, everybody, whether you're taking pictures of it or you're consuming it and making it a part of yours. Um, business owners, television personalities, another business owner and publisher, author and advocate. Um, I don't know where I wanted to start because there's just so much great information. So we're going to start with the season as it is. I know a lot of us have had great success that I build the night on sharing hunting stories and we can certainly bring conservation into it because uh, that is this program. But um, Emily, I'll start with you. Um, and I'm going to make you blush because it's more so out of jealousy. I was going to say she got her moose, you know, a moose, which most people, this happens uh, once in a lifetime. It's her second moose. And she <laughs> just nonchalantly shrugs it off. And uh, 
Go, tell you, you tell that. your okay. story. Go ahead. Tell your story. You've had a heck of a season so far. How's it going? Yeah, it's been it's been quite a year. Uh, well, spring was I doubled in Maine and in New Hampshire for turkeys. So that was a full a full spring for sure. Um, my first New Hampshire bird, which was exciting. Yeah. Birds. Um, my first woods bird. And then, yeah, I got my second moose tag, main moose tag this year, which was. And working for IFNW has nothing to do with that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, okay. I'm, well, the first I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, not suspicious at all. Yeah. Thanks. For that. I'm uh, kidding. <laughs> continue, please. Um, and it's a, it's, it's such an honor and an opportunity. I think what I like honed in a lot with this uh, moose hunt was it's an opportunity to get a moose. It wasn't a moose, you know, mm. and I didn't get my moose till Friday. So the f- fifth day of hunting and interacted with moose every day, um, passed on moose. Just it was such an incredible week with some very close friends. And I'm I don't um I'm the only one in my family that hunts. So I didn't have this like go to hunting like crew and group, like a lot of main families, like it's this whole camaraderie. Everybody comes in to, to your moose hunt and wants to be involved. And so it's a little bit different when you're kind of trying to like piece it all together, I guess. And it can it made for an, an amazing week with some really close friends. A lot of the conversations I have with folks, you know, especially um, the adult onset hunter, the emergent hunter, we constantly talk about barriers for entry. You know, when we're talking about R3 uh, initiatives, what what is stopping people from from either staying with us or getting in? And I mean, that one, I just I just interviewed a, a, a first generation Vietnamese American mm-hmm. out of Michigan and Ann Wen. Um, that that podcast just dropped and. You know, you hear uh, aside from the 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 the, um, the demographic barriers, right? I mean, the family makeup. Mm-hmm. She, her family, her, her dad was a fisherman, a commercial fisherman overseas, and then came over, worked in Canada, did a, a sturgeon commercial fishing or something to that effect, but couldn't cross over to the hunting side of it, and, and scoffed at her for for wanting to hunt. So she had no family support. Never mind uh, a social group, right? That that supported that or was and, and the same thing is being said here. Yeah, thankfully, my family is very supportive of it and they like to eat it, uh, but they don't either like that's you. <laughs> Good for you. You have what in your freezer? Yeah. Like a head of what? Judy, um, I'm going to need another moose tag. <laughs> 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 so it'll be at least three years. So. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Well, so, yep. And have one more buck tag for the fall. I got a doe earlier this year and yeah, I can't believe it's kind of almost over. Yeah. We're getting yeah. down to it. It's, 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 it, it takes forever to get to, but once it's here, it's, it's fa- it goes as fast as it gets mm-hmm. there. Right. Yeah. How's your season going, AJ? I haven't heard from you in like a month, so I know it's going well. Yeah, because I've been, nobody's been able to get a hold of me. Yeah. I mean, uh, take a lot of grouse to equal the weight of a moose. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that'd be particularly ethical either. But, uh, yeah, a lot of grouse hunting. I haven't big game hunted in, oh, it's got to be seven, eight years now. Yeah. So I did shoot a moose once, 2008. 
in New Hampshire. So, but uh, yeah, I've been doing a lot of grouse hunting. Numbers are down, but it's still a good year for me just because I get out there. But um, I did, in September, I went all the way as far west as North Dakota, hunted sharp tails and huns, uh, spent some time in Minnesota, shot my first spruce grouse in Minnesota, um, which was very anticlimactic. Oh, no. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's the box checked. <laughs> Unfortunately, they're a beautiful bird. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily encourage people to go hunt them. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> And then, uh, yeah, just for the rest of the time, been spending time up in my family's camp up north and off the grid, no cell service, no electricity. Just Wonderful. Like wandering out every once in a while to answer like 25% of my emails. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's why I never responded yeah, to you. Right here. You're 26%. I apologize. Well, you're friends now, so you guys will certainly network. How's your season going, Daniel? Uh, I, you know, making the TV show, we're filming our third season right now, so it's it's kind of challenging to do the at-home things that mm -hmm. I love. So I've sort of, um, I've got a very laissez-faire attitude to my deer hunt this year, um, but I was able to do some deer hunting out in Hawaii this year. So Yeah, yeah. How was that? That was fantastic. Um, but the highlight of my year was my exquisite wife, Avani's first turkey hunt. Ooh. So just strangely, one day she woke up and said, you know, I think I want to do a turkey hunt. And so she's never really expressed any interest in hunting. Just been an incredible support to me, but never really had an interest in this year. She was like, we always run out of turkey meat too fast. Sure. Uh, we need more. So uh, we took her out. And on the topic of barrier to entry, I just wanted to bring up this thing that we did um, that I just think is a really unique idea we came up with um if anybody's ever been part of like ems fire police any military work it's like uh scenario-based training seems to mm -hmm. be the thing right so we set up a scenario-based training event for her because she was wanted to get comfortable with the 12 gauge but also with the hunt itself so i dressed us in full ghillie suits i put out decoys i set up a couple logs that were our tom that was going to come in we got set up like we would for real. I got us to where we were like a little out of breath, like making it feel very real. Oh my God, he's coming in. I'm hitting the gobble call. I'm calling. And she shot these logs and we even tagged the log. We walked the whole thing out. And at the end of that, uh, we went out, did a real hunt and boy, did it ever play out just the same way. Mm. And, you know, she, it's like she had walked through it already. So I was like, you know, this is a really cool way to bring new hunters in so that they are not, so that all that stuff's been worked out before they actually in the field. You know what I mean? So yeah. all they got to think about is taking their shot. So that was really fun. And that'll be an episode of season three of Wild Fed this year. Awesome. So I'm pretty excited for people to see that. But uh, it's been a great season. And um, I just also wanted to say one more thing about a grouse being in the value uh, compared to a moose. <laughs> At Wild Fed, we came up with this idea. We call it the uh, the acorn caloric density scale. <laughs> and we take all wild foods and we break it down into acorns. So like how many acorns is a moose worth? How many acorns is a grouse worth? and calories and that helps us to think so that we can actually make decisions so wait a minute, what's the answer well we'd have to do some weighing and whatnot, but, but i would say you know i would say a grouse is worth you know maybe like a hundred acorns so are we not like averaging the taste of the meat we're not taking taste into account okay, we're thinking right. purely calories here aj <laughs> Fair enough. I'm losing this battle. <laughs> <laughs> it's carbohydrates. That's funny. With your, your with your scenario based training, though, I mean that that speaks right to the mentorship aspect of, of getting people involved, right? It's 
you can have a whole population of people that want to be involved in hunting. That want, I was talking to a guy the other night at, at my uh, son's um, hockey practice. I coach hockey for him. And one of the other boys' dads was, he figured out what I do. And he was chewing on my ear all night about, hey, can, can you take me deer hunting? Right? It's like the guys in his mid-40s has always had this want but never had someone to show him the ropes. Right. Or just that, that, that just go through that scenario of, of shooting the log. Yep. That's a huge piece of it. Yeah. And can you imagine like if you were going to be a firefighter and the way that they trained you was just like, well, they told you a little bit about yeah, you're going to grab a hose show up and there. just yeah, point yeah, it. Yeah. And then the, you've Simple. never even ran the hose before. Right. So yeah, now I was thinking, oh, I'm going to drill four holes in a birch log, stick some legs in there, yeah, make yeah. a fake deer, put the person in a tree and have them fire an actual round down into that log. And then it's like they can get some of that, those kinks worked out early yeah. because the like, there's just... For the new hunter, there are so many components, like moving parts that you're playing Completely. with. And uh, especially, I think, with the demographic of people who want to hunt now, most of them don't have firearms experience right. or any kind of weapons experience. And in fact, they may weapons may still like have a really dark and negative connotation for them. So they're still just trying to get over that. Right. And then like on top of it, they got to like look at an animal for the first time with that kind of an intention, all that stuff, just sure. as much of that as we can get out of the way for people as possible. Yeah. I mean, having the fake Tom call, right. That was a lot of fun, <laughs> a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to people seeing that. Cause I think that that kind of thing has a place in what we're trying for to sure. create, you know, I totally agree. Yeah. That's awesome. Brian. Yeah. How's your season going, brother? Well, <laughs> I, uh, I work a lot, so it hasn't been, hasn't been much of a season. Um, although I do have to say, uh, Fred, I have, uh, or my wife has to thank you, um, because, uh, you made me completely addicted to duck honey. Oh, wonderful. Uh, which I had never done before. Which uh, is odd, right? AJ's looking at me like, what do you mean? Like, man, I'm like, duck honey? Side of you, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, went and did it one time and uh, after that I was completely hooked so how's I, it been did you go um, you I go went a couple more times yeah. yeah I got all the stuff and and um, luckily so our property right here is um, on the Lamprey River uh, which is a, a, a great place for uh, for uh, migratory waterfowl and yeah so it was, uh, uh, it's been it's been it's been good I got a you know a couple I, I get very short brief periods of time to haunt uh, with my schedule I get, you know a couple hours here and there which is uh, which is tough so um, but being right here I will get out night and I can't hit them but um, <laughs> I sure I sure I sure love watching them fly overhead at close yeah. it's pretty fun um, <clears throat> and uh, and then uh, most of my deer season will actually probably be even though I'd, I'd love to hunt here we have a, a vineyard and, and corn and uh, and rye and wheat that we grow here for our whiskey production, um, which is great. And um, you'd think we'd have a, a whole problem with deer, but we don't seem to. Um, we don't have a lot of them. It's, it's, <laughs> it's shocking. Um, uh, but it's uh, uh, normally I like to try to get out you know, try to reduce the, the population here for, for pressure on, for pressure on our grains. Um, but I haven't had a chance to do that. So most of my season will be in Pennsylvania this year, which yeah. is, uh, you talking about, um, not having, uh, uh, having grown up and, and hunting. And I guess like, uh, it's funny. This is kind of the first time I think I've ever really thought about that at that level of like, I don't think I would be able to get over that hurdle to start hunting. Cause it's, it's such, it is a giant barrier to entry. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> without like having grown up around it and I know, you know, learning all those skills from, 
for me, you know, how to walk in the woods quiet, how like all these things you don't even think about right. are part of it, like kind of second nature as a, as a kid growing up. Um, so most of my season will be back home and like kind of traditional, traditional Pennsylvania uh, buck season. So I wake up with everybody, go out in the morning, everybody sits in a stand all day and gets cold and comes, comes back and eats some chili and goes back out and gets cold again. So <laughs> I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, for sure. We, I don't, we I, look forward to the suffering. Know, it sounds <laughs> exhilarating, right? But, uh, no, it's, it's, it's great. I, lo I love it. It's all like, you know, everyone's around from, from when I was a kid and it's, it's, it's great. I love, I love, love going and doing it. Um, so I, I can't answer on how my season's going to be honest with you. Cause it hasn't happened yet. Well, it's, it's still, it's still to come, which is great, yeah. right? Yeah. It's exciting. It's, there's always something to look forward to. And then with your duck obsession now, and that's going to take you clear into uh sea ducking, which goes into the new year. So uh, I got to get my boat back out. Buckle up, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to need a whole lot more steel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, there was something you said I wanted to hit on again, coming into the barriers or entry and, and, and just, just all of that, that comes with that. And, um, Shoot, I lost my thought, man. I'm, I'm, th I'm thinking about your duck hunting obsession now, and I'm like, shoot, his wife is so upset with me now. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. She's great. She loves <laughs> There's uh, something I've been, I think I'm most famously, Joe Rogan has talked about this. You know, he's, I think he's become one of those. Oh, got it back. Okay, go ahead. Keep uh, going. Just, he's become one of those like sort of unsung heroes of the yeah. hunting recruitment lately. Mm -hmm. uh, but I've heard this from probably a dozen people in the last couple of years, which was like, I was either going to become a vegan or become a hunter. <laughs> and this is a really interesting moment. So yeah. talking about those barriers to entry, because when somebody's looking at those two choices and it, it means they probably don't have, they probably don't have any of the requisite skills, right. right? If that's where they're at. And so I think that that's interesting. That's what we're kind of looking at for. And I, you know, I don't know how much of that's factored yet into the kind of R3 thinking, like how, do you how think that's hyperbole or do you think that's real? I like was a vegan are for 10 really years, there. Fred. Yeah. Can I just back up and just say, yeah, yeah, I yeah. have this thing on my podcast where I love to talk about people's names because so often people's names, ref like it's interesting how their career sometimes gets reflected in it. And I was like, oh, that's funny. You work at the National Wild Turkey Federation and your name's Fred Bird. No, yeah, like, yeah. He goes, yeah, my middle name is Thomas. I was like, Tom Bird. <laughs> <laughs> Can't yeah. even handle that. It was, and I've it thought was about, I bet I've thought about that every day since you told me that. Like, <laughs> Tom Bird. Um, I don't think that's hyperbole. I yeah. think that a lot of people are really thinking about food and the messaging of, hey, your food's probably your biggest impact you make on the world. Mm. And so it's like, oh my gosh, I want to make sure that I'm, you know, my impact makes sense. And so I think people are looking at those kind of things and they, you know, again, just speaking to that, I don't think people are, um, many of the requisite skills are things you would have just had as general life skills in the past. And now we're starting at like cold zero with everybody. And For real. You know, so I think especially in suburbia. Right. I mean, you would think even having a patch of grass and some oak trees in your backyard would lend itself to some sort of frolicking about and getting your feet in the grass. Right, but and, they might not, not know that's an oak tree. In there. But, right, but that's my, my point is like it's you have that, but they don't even know that it's a thing you have. Right. Right. Just. Everyone's so busy. I mean, look at my nine-year-old. I got him working a raffle over there, but like he's, he's in hockey four or five nights a week. He's, you know, he's up in the morning and off to school. And as soon as he's off the bus, he's got something to do. Right. So it's, we all value it, but you know, modern day uh, society says, you're going to, little kids are going to go to school. They're going to be involved in a sport or an extracurricular. 
And if you happen to be part of that 4.8% that, that participates in hunting across this nation, maybe you can get some time in the woods with your kids. Mm-hmm. And their, their little schedules don't even, you know, allow them half the time to get in there unless they're doing outside PE. And everybody thinks deer hunting in the beginning. And it's like, oh, I always, God, I'm like, no. man, I mean, <laughs> as you guys know, it's that thing of like 30 days of it. And if I, where I live, if I see a couple of deer in the season, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, right. So I'm always trying to go like, let's go turkey hunting. Let's go squirrel yeah. hunting. And people are often like, yeah, but dude, that's not really what I want to do. I was like, yeah, <laughs> I know, perfect. I know. But like, <laughs> let's go work some of those skills and have successes every day. Or like you said, with your moose hunts, like interactions every day. Right. So every day they come home. Cause man, imagine taking somebody for a week of deer hunting and nothing happens the whole week. Yeah. And they're like, man, I don't want anything to do with hunting. This is about the most boring thing. Yeah, I've ever for done. sure. That's and it's cold too. The worst way to, <laughs> to create a hunter, right? Is deer hunting. Turkeys itself. <laughs> silver bullet for that in my opinion turkey yeah, is yeah. one of the and that's the other thing is just hunters willing to give up their time a lot of hunters aren't willing to give up their time during big game season but people give up their time during turkey season yeah right. you know and that's like it's a high engagement like heart racing experience yeah. when you have a turkey on top of you and that thing gobbles and you can feel the ground shake like there's mm. nothing like that yeah. it's, you want to get somebody hooked on on life on hunting just one time yeah, me. from <laughs> from nine years old to thirty nine years old and, and beyond, it's the same thing every time. Yeah, yeah, that's how I started, and for sure, that's what happened for me. Yeah. I mean, and every morning you're hearing gobbles, yeah, so it's yeah, like yeah. you know, you know, it's gonna, you something's happening. It's not just sitting in a stand yeah. like listening to red squirrels chirp for a while. Yeah, I heard them. They were hammering. It got to. I always say in the in the winter time, as soon as it hits thirty two or below, get ready for some goblin in November. And sure enough, I was in a deer stand the other morning and they just let off. It was yeah. 23 degrees and they were hammering like it was May. It was phenomenal. I didn't see a damn deer, but man, I heard some turkeys gobbling. It was great. Yeah, there's nothing like that sound. No, it's, it's fantastic. So I, I want to, I put a mental pin in. I want to go back to that thing. So what you guys are saying reminded me of a conversation I had years ago, again, with the, with the old podcast with, with Renella. And we, we both kind of challenge each other in this mid conversation about new hunters versus, um, you know, womb to tomb hunters. It's just part of their their genetic makeup, part of, you know, right out of the womb that, you know, dad had him in plaid and then right in the back of a, a, you know, a pickup truck or whatever in the hinterlands of Pennsylvania. Right. To make a meme of it. Um, and I argued that the the adult onset hunter, the emergent hunter um, was. I don't want to say more valuable, but they, they were better learners. Um, and, and not from a, maybe from a place of maturity, but because my argument was when you get to a certain point in your life uh, as an adult past 25, your, your frontal lobe is, is formed. You're past your formative years. You kind of, when you make decisions, you know what you want to do, right? You're, you're somewhat informed so that the, the late hunter is more uh, in tune and more tentative to to listening and, and learning and, and applying those skill sets where a kid may dawdle along. You speak to them a few times and they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then they repeat, rinse and repeat and you kind of go through the iteration. And I, I, the analogy I made was my my experience uh, coming to my faith. Right. Um, you know, I went from being raised a Protestant kid, just going through the iterations, not really having a, a grasp on my faith uh, to somewhat becoming an agnostic in my early my late teens, early 20s in the military. And then, you know, leaving that and, and hitting a certain point in my life and, and, and finding my faith and then eventually converting to Catholicism. These are all purposeful 
choices I made and then going through that that transition of going from being a Protestant to a Catholic and going through the, the, the rights and going through the education part of it, I was like, man, I never knew any of this. Right. And this isn't a religious speech. This is just a, it's again, it's an analogy, but same thing with hunting is like you get a, a 28, 29 year old out there for the first time and you're giving them an education, the stuff that just comes very second nature to any of us at this table and their eyes and you see the light click and you're like, oh, and they're like, I get it. I get it. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and to us, it's very second nature. And, that, and I kind of made the same thing. And he he didn't like it. <laughs> He's like, I, I'm just going to disagree with you because he thought right, you know, from when you can crawl to walk and, and talk that 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 hunter kind of had it down more than that, that, that emergent. I don't know if his, this was, I mean, I'm going back five years and I don't know if his opinions has changed, but at the time of that conversation, and it was just an interesting, uh, it was an interesting, um, per, nice butting of the heads on that. And I, and I appreciated the debate on it. It certainly got me thinking, I mean, what, are, what are your opinions on that? I mean, you're late, you were, you were late. You both have been in it. I was late. I mean, what do you think? I, it's tough. I, I think there's, there's pluses and minuses to both sides of it, obviously, of personally in Maine with a lot of the like dar diehard guys that I know. It's like I went to hunter safety when I was in my 20s. So I like took it in very differently. And to me, I'm like, it's not hard to ask for permission to hunt somewhere mm. like that. That's that's just how it is. There's all these resources of finding um landowner names and act like how to go talk to people like in your 20s you should know how to like have a conversation <laughs> talk about barrier yeah. to entry now yeah. Holy <laughs> but <laughs> can i can i do this to my neighbor can i have permission right <laughs> but then the people that have you know born and raised hunting no. they're they have a different like take on that it's like challenging to go ask for permission or they're like oh we're just gonna go hunt there anyway you know it's fine it, you know they're which is a problem in and of itself right yeah. yeah that's a different issue but yeah i don't it's i got introduced to it in a very unique way i guess but it and i'm very fortunate to be just surrounded by positive people yeah. too and mentors and and ask the right questions and there's no wrong answer yeah, here. No what do you think? Born into it, late late hunter. Well, what do you, you, know what do you I'm think? Always good for a hot takes. So yes, please. That's, that's what you want from me. Yeah. Um, Send I it. don't think you're wrong to think that there's a commitment coming into it at an older age. You had to make a kind of bigger decision to get there. But um, I know, and I have the data to to firmly support this, and I'll argue this is that there's a generational gap. And that has to do with the way people think. Mm. Uh, older generations, and I'll use grouse as an example, think they're entitled to a four bird limit in the state of New Hampshire, as where somebody who's young Gen X, millennial, Gen Z is gonna say, well, how much does my four bird impact actually have in the population? Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's a fundamental shift between entitlement and a gener generations that have been raised up in the concept of the effects of climate change and the fact that our resources are, are finite right. um, and not necessarily never ending, especially when abused. So point being, um, I see in younger generations and we have data at Project Upland to support this, that when they go onto the land, their thought process is, what am I, how is my impact on this land? How am I impacting this land? Versus an older generation that is, I'm entitled yeah. to this impact. And, and I think that that's the, the most important thing, because R3, one of the big things, I, I, I do agree with this, is the concept that uh, quality is more important than quantity. Mm -hmm. 
And um, I don't think that we necessarily have a, there's aspects or fringe that get exaggerated that people want to point a spotlight on for quantity that make us look bad, especially some younger generations. But I think overall, I think uh, younger people getting into hunting, especially people who haven't grown up hunting, who find themselves the vegan story. I've heard it so many times too. that aspect of, uh, you know, I think about bird dogs, you know, the amount of people that I know that got into hunting because they owned a dog breed that was a hunting dog breed. And ultimately that is what led them into hunting because it was like, oh, well, my dog wants to point birds. Uh, I'm going to go to this thing and now suddenly my dog's pointing birds and this is fun. And then next thing I know, I'm shooting birds, Um, you know, so I think that that the path of the obscurity is much different now. And I think that that makes uh, a better quality of recruitment. Um, And I think a lot of what people want to scream about and people who grew up hunting, you know, I'm in my 40s. You know, and I've done it since is the first thing I can remember as a kid is shooting birds. <laughs> you know, like it's my youngest memories, you know. So um, I think that there's just this big divide about seeing how different the way people are thinking about it and doing it. Yeah. That causes a lot of angst, a lot of angst for even people that I know, whether it's my father, my uncle, you know, people that are around me, older people that uh, it's just so different. And younger people have taken it over and they've made it their own, which honestly is that's what hunting should be. It should be evolution. You know, there should be, um, you know, it's, um, and I always think of the story. I think about being a kid and, you know, you'd be sitting behind this tree in Western mass and, you know, you know, my father and grandfather would be like, Oh yeah, deer ran through here like six years ago. And it's just like, I'm sitting there. Remember being a kid and me like, wait, so like, so like, what are we doing here? <laughs> and once I got to that age to like go off and hunt on my own, you know, I challenged that aspect of like, you know, like, why do we do these things? You know, I, I always say like millennials are, are that first generation. That's the, but why, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, uh, the, but why attitude can actually make you a pretty good hunter. Sure. <laughs> so that's my uh, my hot take. I think there's I a think generation, it's... generational gap there that um, I know it's an unpopular opinion, but I, I feel I feel feel very strongly about that. <laughs> no, and I don't. I personally, I don't think you're wrong, and um, I, I'm in, I'm encouraged by that, especially if you have data sets to back that that up, because you know there's an ownership in that. You know, people going out there, you know, replacing that sense of entitlement with a sense of responsibility and uh, a roundabout way of, of ownership of that resource, but understanding it's a shared resource. That's great. I hope, I, I hope that continues and, and continues Absolutely. to evolve. I think Gen Z will be a more extreme version of it. Uh, and, and I, and hopefully that, that takes that 4.8% number that just came out the other day, hard number, uh, current number and, and sees that back to the 7.6% that it was um, 15 years ago, right across the country. Well, and I think, you know, or you better, know you work for NWTF. Um, it's unfortunate that the Generation Z conversation isn't number one on everybody's table, and it should be. Millennials have already come and gone. We right. failed. Where, you know, I'd be an elder millennial, but you know, um, uh, point. For being yeah, here with yeah, us. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just uh, don't knock my cane over. Right? And uh, but that concept of you know Gen Z is is so different than millennials. You know and um, it's it's going to be a much harder nut to crack 
um, because it has been so isolated from this type of culture and the importance of the fringe aspect, somebody who might've been a vegan, I know you do like gathering and stuff like that. Like that's foreign to me, you know, like these different fringe things, cause it, it can't necessarily be, let's go out and kill a turkey. It might have to be, let's go collect fiddleheads. Let's go, uh, let's go uh, band woodcock with a pointing dog. Mm -hmm. Let's do these different aspects that aren't necessarily killing, but are just on the edge that now you have this exposure for a better understanding. Because if you just throw it right into this, we're killing a 800 pound moose. That's, that's a, that's a much bigger, you know, responsibility. Mm -hmm. And, and you have to consider things of, uh, the simple human aspect of, you know, a lot of people don't want to think about, or, well, don't think about this. It's a lot harder to kill a mammal than it is to kill a bird. You know, humans inherently are mammals. You know, when you kill a furred animal, you know, you got Bambi in the back of your mind. You kill a bird and you don't feel necessarily the same yeah. thing. I feel bad every bird I kill, but I love grouse and woodcock. They're like my most favorite thing in the world. <laughs> I don't stop shooting them, but, <laughs> but nevertheless, you know, so that aspect of thinking about these different gaps that, um, there's just such an important thing. I, I always say with Project Upland, my most important job ever is to find the Generation Z person who, who uh, replaces me. Yeah. And I think we should all think that way yeah. with hunting. If, if I'm a turkey hunter, deer hunter, all around hunter, finding that Gen Z person that's going to replace me is so important because the reality is, is that somebody at my age might not be able to talk to somebody at 22 years old. No. I might not be able to connect to them. Right. I might think I can in some aspects, but mostly we're, we're telling dad jokes now. So like, <laughs> that's, a, mean, that's a terrible, terrible you know, truth like, and realization that I've recently tell, come to understand. You, you know, you mean you could tell some good dad. Jokes. Yeah. And I still don't believe it because like when you say 22, I'm like, yeah, I'm 22. I'm not 22. Yeah. <laughs> that's a bummer. Yeah. I feel like it. I know I do too. <laughs> stories that take place 22 years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. That's right. <laughs> Daniel, what's your, what's your thought? Going back to the original uh, so question there I about... Love, I like this topic. There's a lot to it. Go um, to it. Yeah, I think, first of all, I just want to, uh, you know, offer all respect to St. Steve and all he's done for us. Um, <laughs> Very good. But I, you know, I've heard that kind of a take from him before and... I can imagine it's frustrating when you're part of that community that's that deep in to mm. listen to the nonsense from all the people who are trying to figure it out afresh mm. and all the silly things we do and the things that we know, but then all the things we don't even know we don't know. Right. And I'm sure that's annoying. So I totally get that. But it all, I don't like the idea of the hunting world being broken into these two camps either. I don't think that's effective moving right. forward. Um, and then what you said about replacing yourself, it's almost like, you know, that kind of math of if a couple has one child then they're still Decline. reducing the population That's right. you need to have three kids before you actually have added one so if we want to get from 4.8 to 15 percent mm. you got to find like a like couple of people to replace you right. um and i think that takes a little more investment than it used to you know in the in the people um one of the big differences that i've noticed kind of going back to what you were saying when i came into hunting i, I I was like, oh, cool, we're all in this together. And it was like really <laughs> exciting to me to meet wardens. I thought, oh, these guys are so cool. I couldn't wait to What a cool job. And I'd be, like, I'd be out in the woods like, where are they? Like, like hoping to meet them. And if I ran into one, I was like, this is so cool. You're so such a cool dude. 
Uh, and then I started, you know, but then all the old timers are like, oh, Johnny Greenlaw's out today. He's going to bust you. You know, oh, he's looking for something. He's probably out there with his binoculars watching us right now. And I like, got the, mechan- the mechanical are you, grouse out. Are you from? Yeah, yeah. The mechanical deer stories that I've heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, You're not that's, from Sanford, are you? That's, that's, that's a very Sanford. We'll talk after this. But, um, anyway, what I find really fascinating is. I look at everybody involved in the administration, in law enforcement and all of that as part of this thing. And I I realized that there was a real um, sort of animosity Mm -hmm. in the past. Mm. But I think it's important too, like we often don't remember like where we are in time. So for instance, for me, one of the biggest things, and I make this TV show, and in my TV show, I'm killing young animals constantly and people (laughs) make fun of me all the time for it. (laughs) (laughs) But then I go, oh, right, like, what do you do when you want meat? You go to the farm and you're like, yeah, you got any seven-year-old bulls here? I wanna fill the freezer. (laughs) I'm looking for a six-year-old cocker. It's like, no way, you eat like a one-year-old animal. But then everybody's like, but I want a seven-year-old buck. It's like, gross, man. I don't wanna eat a seven-year-old buck. I mean. I get it, but what really happened was hunting used to be for food. Mm. We extirpated most of the animals. We needed to shift how we hunted. We went to hunting as leisure and we became sportsmen. We made the idea of eating the animals something distasteful to us culturally. And we started focusing in on the trophy aspect of it to reduce our impact. Mm. That has gotten fetishized to a level that's almost obscene. And now when you're like, yeah, but I'm not looking for like a sinewy old stinky buck. I'm looking for some like good eats. And people are like, oh, you don't know what you're doing. So I think there's like these changes because we don't know where we are in time because it's shifted again Mm. back to a food driven hunt. Um, And now we have the kind of policy in place to support that so that we can do that. So I think more and more people are coming in. I think a big part of the new demographics coming for food because they've come out of fad diets or they've they've gotten interested in knowing where their food is coming from or whatever it is um and that's going to lead them to make different choices on the landscape that don't make sense to that guy who's only wants you know nothing under 10 points or whatever it's going to look different and so that i think is important too and then remembering that even that history we're sandwiched inside of like three and a half million years of hunting right so like this is everybody's inheritance and you know i always tell the story about my friend arthur was uh you know, he naps flint and makes arrowheads and such, you know, so he's really into, you know, using, you know, doing archery with yeah. homemade arrow points. And he talked about going into an archery shop and a guy looking at this stone point and going, <laughs> you think that'd kill a deer? <laughs> it's like, bro, that's been killing deer for about maybe 200,000 yeah. years. Yeah, exactly so right. get where, get with the times, bro. Like you know, <laughs> you've lost touch a little bit. So sometimes we kind of lose touch with where we are in this whole thing too. Mm. I think it's important that we understand historically that what we're passing on is not just a lifestyle pursuit. We're passing on the fundamental human food acquisition method of all time. Agriculture is maybe 10,000 years old and the whole world isn't even practicing it. There are still a hundred tribes of people who live off of wild food completely. So it's not like the whole world's even embraced. This is a new thing we do, but we've always hunted. And so it's, to me, it's not just passing on, like it's not just the heritage thing. It's like existential to who we are. And so I think there's, it deserves more emphasis and culture than it's getting. And when we connect it deeply with food traditions that not just our families but our species man it feels to me like a thing when you frame it like that could be taught in school 
Yeah, you know, it should be. It's Absolutely. got it's got more import than just um, this is something we do in the fall. And, and this, you know, this audience won't know this unless you listen to the podcast. But it goes back to our conversation a few weeks ago and talking about <clears throat> diversity and this this modern day idea of, you know, these um, minority groups in America specifically of bringing them into hunting and bringing them in the fold. And I've been here like the referee on the football field throwing the yellow flag like bullshit. Like, what do you mean bringing them into the fold? Yeah. They've been doing this for a millennia plus. Yeah. This skin color has nothing to do with it. We like you just said, we are human beings. This is a, a species thing. This is how we how we made it to where we're at we're at. We didn't do it by eating fiddleheads all the time. You know, our, our teeth tell us that. Like we were out there actively on the landscape, uh, procuring protein in one form or another, consuming it and perpetuating our species. So it always it's it's aggravated me this this idea that um and I'm not trying to go down this rabbit hole, but white, that it's like a white people. Yeah, thing. man. And that's just yeah. not true. This is a, a thing in the last 60, 70 years. Right. This well, is we talk very about new. Uh, when you came on the show, that's exactly that right. we were just saying like white people from Europe have been removed from a life on the landscape probably longer than any other racial group in the world. Mm-hmm. So when you look at people descended from Africa, descended from uh, particularly from Africa is a great example. Four or five hundred years ago they were living close to the landscape and hunting was a big part of that. And so it's interesting that today that's seen as a group of people super removed from it Mm. because Europeans were removed from it a lot longer than that. So that's what's interesting. Like you were talking about uh, somebody from, did you say Vietnamese? Yeah, and Very often you you meet immigrants from Southeast Asia who come here and... When, if I'm on the coast and I see anybody from Asia like leaned over looking at the water with a line, I'm like right over there. What are you doing? Because for sure they're doing something I've never seen. Sure. They're catching something I might not even know about and then they're going to eat it. And I want to know. And about you're about to they, learn something. They're much closer. They, they, they're culturally much closer to it. So even though we have a more ingrained hunting culture, it's not necessarily been connected to subsistence the same way. So um, I'd like to see more cross-cultural pollination, not just all of us going like, we need to bring in more diversity. It's like, like, or maybe real cultural diversity, not just color diversity, actual cultural diversity. I agree with you. Could really benefit. Because I sometimes look at, like when I look at hunting magazines, I'm like, man, this is like kind of a dead end. Where's this headed? Mm. Like we need to, this needs to like steer into some new, we need to like get into some new territory because this is otherwise like maybe, I don't know where it goes from here. But if all of a sudden hunting started to be heavily populated by, let's say people from Vietnam, well, they're going to bring in a whole bunch of new things and the state's going to scramble and regulate a whole bunch of new things. And we're going to have a whole bunch of new harvests and ideas and fresh methods. And I, I would like to see that more mm-hmm. new methodologies and more new ideas, more new species, more new food concepts, not just a rainbow of people. Like, yeah, that's yeah. great. But yeah. like, I want to see more culture. Yeah. Too. And new to us, right? Cause it's not new to them. They've been at it. Right. Correct. Yeah. yeah. How, <clears throat> on that topic, how, um, how much of it is, um, uh, commercialization? Do you think? Because like, there is a. I mean, I'm in a crowd where I'm, I got to be careful saying this. Go for it. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe not. You're in the trust oh, tree. Boy, nobody You're has okay. a sensor uh, button like, here. <laughs> there is um, a lot of like uh, when it, to your point of hunting magazines. Right when you look at it and say, "Where's this going?" When I look at it, most of what I see is just like advertisement for like newest hunting gear, newest. Uh, uh, whatever the newest rifle is. You guys just got to read Project Upland Magazine. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, not to shout out my own name. 
saying? We're picking up Hunting Dog Confidential, which is about the most international publication as it comes. Like, you got you want to see a moose hunted with Lakey and and uh, in, in Russia or, or something like that. Like, you know, like uh, so so just be so careful we'll with the, out, the heavy handed hunting magazines. <laughs> so we'll back we'll back out up one magazine from this from this conversation. You know the magazines we mean. <laughs> That's why you make one. But yeah, that's like I wonder how much of that is involved in mm-hmm. like it's a it's a sellable unit. Yeah. You know. Oh, as a whole, it's I mean, what are the the um the study that just came out? I mean, outdoor recreating in totality, it was we just we just released a number last week uh from the round table. It was um it was really obscene amount of money in the billions. Like many billions of dollars. And that's everything. That's not just hunting and fishing, and but that's that's outdoor industry completely. So there's there's so many livelihoods. I'm like hell, I'm I'm getting paid to be here. You know, I, I pay my mortgage and pay my bills and support my family. I mean, there it there is a business aspect to it, right? Completely. I, I think there's yeah. an interesting layer to this though, and I've seen this a lot talking about cultural differences or generational differences. Um, social media really put a lot of this in our face. You know, there's rise of uh, of uh, social influencers and when it's been a angst inside the hunting community. And I remember being uh, a teenager and going around to hunting expos in in like harassing Chuck Adams, you know, like you guys know who Chuck Adams oh, yeah. is. Like, I mean, that dude was, was down, a down, God. That dude was a God to me. Down you to know? Worcester. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> and he used to like it. And, and at that point, I mean, his kind of peak was the seventies and eighties. So it kind of like had died out. So like I was the only person harassing him, but, um, same. I think what the the interesting aspect is, is that a lot of people have equated recently with the rise of social influence that, hunting has been hoard out to some capacity at an outrageous rates like companies are hiring people to do all these things and it's so outrageous you went to an expo in in 1992 or 1993 and you'd have to take a shower (laughs) after meeting some of the people representing some of the brands so although it's easier to find because of the internet in fact it might be more calmed down Some say a silenced gunshot is the baddest sound out there. At Silencer Central, we have another favorite. It's the sound of silence delivered to your front door. When you buy from Silencer Central, we handle your application, set you up with a free NFA gun trust, and deliver your silencer straight to you. With an average 90-day turnaround time when you use eForms, buying a silencer is simpler than ever. Visit silencercentral.com and we'll help you get started. Under the visionary leadership of founder Johnny Morris, Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's is leading North America's largest conservation movement. Their partnership with the National Wild Turkey Federation is a match made in heaven for hunters across America. The Save the Habitat, Save the Hunt initiative continues to be a resounding success, with more than $6 million provided for conserving wildlife habitat, recruiting more hunters, and opening more access to hundreds of thousands of acres across the nation. To learn more, go to BassPro.com conservation. 
Have you been to shop.nwtf.org yet? Well, if not, I invite you to go there now. Again, that's shop.nwtf.org for all the latest and greatest NWTF lifestyle gear. Need a trucker cap? We got you covered. Need a low pro hat? We got you covered there. Guys gear, ladies gear, kids gear, accessories for the pool, for the backyard, for hunting, camping. We got you all there. Shop.nwtf.org. Go there today and get your latest NWTF gear. Millennials particularly are are really blowing the whistle on that about being like this whole like, you know, should you really be profiting off of hunting in some capacities? There's a lot of questions about that, which, you know, I completely understand, don't necessarily disagree with, ironically, as somebody who makes my living in the hunting industry. But um, that there's this this um, this shift where there's this younger accountability. And I think the biggest thing that we see is without naming groups or anything, there are large media groups in this country that refuse to recognize even millennials and what that means to their to their future, never mind Generation Z. I remember being in some closed board meetings six, seven years ago, and the youngest person in that room would have been in their 70s. And having to sit there and be like, I understand that I'm a tattooed dude who's in my 30s. With long hair. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not at the time. Not at the time. This is, this is COVID. This is my remnants of COVID. And, uh, and kind of just banging my head off the table of being like, I understand that you want things to be a certain way, but it's gone. And if you don't embrace this new thing, it's definitely gone, <laughs> you know? And, but more importantly, I think, uh, to my point is self-policing um, of the millennial generation, how harsh social media can actually be. Mm. It's not necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> um, that kind of checks and balances of, it's really, I mean, what we're actually seeing, and I see this a lot in the Upland space, there are companies that are icons that are 100 plus year old companies that are being unseated by companies that are five, six years old. Yeah. And and that is because they have just refused to recognize, change, see the light or do anything new. And that is so important to, um, you know, you want to talk about industry in general, but I think we have something really at stake here, which is uh, our environment, <laughs> you know, and we're talking about the most environmentally conscious generations that have ever been raised that are now setting their sights on things. And and I'll say as somebody who works in the upland space, what I find even beyond that is is deer. Everybody wants to go right to deer. Deer are overpopulated. <laughs> I mean, they're a, a menace on nesting birds, neotropical migratory birds, native fauna, you name it. I mean, they are a menace. We should be hunting them uh, 10 times what we hunt them right now in most parts of this country. We should be. We should be to the point of, of, of reducing populations by 70, 80% in some areas. And yet in the upland space um, this week, uh, lesser prairie chicken listed yeah. endangered yeah, on was. the endangered species yeah. list now um, in our lifetime in my lifetime you used to be able to hunt rough grouse right here how many rough grouse do you think you see in Lee, New Hampshire? Lee? Zero I know yeah. I, you go 15 minutes a little west I, a few yeah, yeah. handful when but I was up a kid, in elevation you'd hunt and shoot a limit of grouse and plast down yeah. in the Hampshire yeah, that's right you know and that's, you know, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, you know, 
not anymore. So what, what I try to uh, shed a light on, and I think this is an important thing, is we look at some of these more popular things, but we're experiencing mass extinction in my lifetime, not in many generations lifetime, but pr- primarily with upland game birds, yeah. um, you know, completely disappearing rough grouse in my lifetime will probably no longer be huntable in the lower 48 because of the way climate change is affecting them. Mm. Um, there's these so many different aspects that, um, and the answer to all of it, and this is one of those things talking about a generational gap is combating climate change is, you know, the greatest thing to combat climate change is habitat creation, cut more trees, more carbon sequestration. You know, you got all this different aspect, um, but yet you have an older generation that shuts that down in our industry, Sure. you know? And, and, but meanwhile, there's people like me that are just like, Hey, I want to get trees, more trees cut, like, and people to curb climate change are willing to cut trees. Like, why wouldn't you be behind that? And for them, it's just this stubbornness, this, these aspects. So to this point of like thinking about, um, where generations are going and how people are looking at you, you always, you know, I'm good for the hot take. Um, <laughs> there's this whole different thing, but thinking about that responsibility or people wanting to know where their food comes from. But I think there's a lot of sad parts of the story, meaning that there are birds, not just lesser prairie chicken, that are going to go extinct or become endangered mm-hmm. in their lifetime. Um, and that can happen for other things. Uh, the state of New Hampshire went through this recently with, um, you know, there was some political debates around the gray squirrel. And (laughs) the almost ending result was to unregulate squirrel hunting. And there are states in this country that have gray squirrels are almost extinct, you know? And and just because we have an abundant population doesn't mean we should just kill them. My friend just said we should kill more deer. I understand (laughs) that. That wasn't lost on me. But But point being is the need for regulation, the need for responsible, the need for society to step in and say when is enough, when is not enough. And I think what's important to you, and this is what I challenge everybody, is that, and this was to your point about saying that you were getting made fun of for shooting younger deer. Um, Making the deer the largest in the landscape is not conservation. Healthy populations, conservation biodiversity that's the word that should be biodiversity is what's conservation and and yeah yes and that's what we should be thinking about it should we should be thinking about not just the deer not just the grouse we should be thinking about the the plants which i'm guessing you know that a little better than me but (laughs) point being is these different aspects and layers that um truly result in you know because when you see 50 deer in a day when you sit in a tree stand that's not nature that's not biodiversity that's you see a rough grouse when you're doing that no they've eaten all their nesting habit you see a uh, a chestnut sided warbler in there nope definitely didn't not going to be able to nest there you know like so point being like this aspect of really understanding um how complex the system actually is and the responsibility of that and there has to be this decision of saying that more deer and more hunting isn't being a conservationist that's not necessarily those things aren't hand in hand and we by default especially older generations have been taught that (laughs) and getting back to that but why um you know we really need to challenge those concepts of saying those different things about what is you know 
Is it cool to make fun of somebody for shooting a button buck? I mean, I've eaten plenty of button bucks in my life. Would you, would you rather eat a button buck? <laughs> I, absolutely, I absolutely would. I absolutely would. So I tell the old timers all the time. I go, I go uh, you think I'm weird? Wait until the face tattooed kids start hunting. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's that Gen Z yeah. thing. Yeah. They're going to come into hunting like so different than yeah. what we... I never of. thought I'd see a rise in porcupine eating, but apparently like that's, that's a thing. becoming a thing now. Porcupine yeah. is I thought I was, the, I was the only person I knew who ever ate a pork. Oh, they taste piney. You tell <laughs> was, they taste like pine. Nope. So, you never had one. So my gray don't. matter is absolutely spinning because there's like, I put a whole bunch of pins and a bunch of stuff you just you just said. So I'm going to try to bring this all to like a few points. First, I want to go back to the number I was trying to come up with. It was 862 billion in 2001 alone wow, for the outdoor wild. space. 862 billion. So when you say outdoor space, you're talking everything. Like skiing. Everything. Okay. Yeah. All right. So that's obviously that's not hunters. But hunters, I think, without being misquoting here, I think hunters are good for six billion annually. I think is roughly the number. Um, that's almost a trillion dollars. That's that's a huge number. So there's value systems all over the place of people using the resources, and it's just where do you get to them? So uh, what you were saying about <clears throat> getting to a place of biodiversity and, and managing populations of animals for, for certain persuasions and, and reasons. Right. So I think our agencies do a real good job of, of trying to balance that. Right. So being responsible to the resource and to the landscape and, and coming at it from a, a biological professional standpoint and, and being, and having integrity in that. But then there's also this, um, there's a social, dynamic at play with selling hunting licenses and motivating people to come out in the landscape. And there's a, there's a trade-off there, right? With I'm going to go out there. Why, why people go turkey hunting, right? For that gobble. That's what gets people coming back and, and, and why people don't go out and introduce people to hunting for deer hunting because it ruins them. But there's this, there's this value system. So if I'm going to go out and you were talking about it and, and harvest something, I want to, I want to kill something. I want to fill some tags. I want to, I want to get something out of my efforts. So there's, they're stuck in this, this weird spot of, of being true to their profession and, and the science behind it. Right. And, and doing all the analytics, but also if people aren't paying the bills and there's not people out there on the landscape participating in this and then giving to this 862 and, and all the different roundabout ways, what, how do you suss that out? Now, having said that, I'm going to get to a, where I want to start with you on this next idea, building off of what we just build off of is what's the carrying capacity for hunters. <laughs> All right. Cause we talk about R3 a lot. And I know, I know I get crooked looks from people when I bring this up, especially in my own organization, right? Because that's such a big, big thing is recruitment and retention. But what's our carrying capacity on the landscape? And this gets to the quality of the hunt. If 4.8% of the population is hunting and half of us are complaining that all I see is Wayne from Sanford in my spot. <laughs> What's my quality of hunt? And now it becomes uh, a resource issue. And especially out in the West, I went out to Montana and hunted Turkey this past spring and Holy crap. I mean, if you don't know somebody or understand how to, unravel that Rubik's cube, that is public land or BLM or the different, public land uses or knowing somebody it's like it's why i quit trout fishing when i was when i was 13, 12 years old there's just too many damn rules and i couldn't keep up with it right it just wasn't worth my effort and i didn't have the time to put into it so a lot a lot there laid on the table but 
keep that in mind when I'm coming back to you. So uh, I'll start with you, Brian. Like, so that's a, I don't know how to, <clears throat> a lot of ways to like approach it, like trying to, trying to answer the question. So, um, probably the easiest way for me to answer it is like what I, what I know, um, in my experiences. So, um, <clears throat> growing up, I hunted about a hundred acres or so that was adjoining another 200 acres. And if we'd had more in rifle season, if you had more than, you know, three or four people hunting that land on that space, it would have been, I mean, who's going to, where are you going to shoot? Yeah. You know, there's like no safe way to do it. So, you know, it wasn't a good, you know, three to four is probably the maximum on, on that amount of space. And then how much of that space exists? Um, you know, in new England, there's not all that much of it. So and fragmented, to, you know, to your point of like uh, biodiversity for, for the land, uh, which helps biodiversity of the species, uh, both plant and animal. Um, then you got a whole nother economics problem, which is like, for, you know, for me I'm running a business, uh, we have a hundred, roughly 120 acres or so here now. Um, and I can't afford to own that land unless that land is making money and to make that land make money. I need to have employees and to have employees. I need to have growth because who here at this table wants to make less money next year than they made this year. <laughs> like, doesn't, you know, right. nobody, nobody wants that. So like you can't have a business that's going backwards. Um, cause if you have a business going backwards, you have no employees and you can't afford the land and the land, you know what, see what I'm saying? It's like, a, it's a circular problem. So <clears throat> like for me, as much as I love, like I love, uh, to hunt and I want to see more animals and more, like a, a more diversity of species um, by nature of the economics problem. I'm f I have to oftentimes go the opposite direction in some ways of that, like uh, not always. Right. There's some places where these things are 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 congruent. Um, uh, but, you know, we grow you know, I, to make whiskey. I need a uh, 40 ton of corn a year. Um, I can't plant one plant everywhere and harvest it by hand, like not in New England. Um, it's not, it's not possible. So, uh, you know, I have to grow, uh, uh, 20 acres of, of just corn, um, as a monocrop and to harvest it efficiently. And, uh, so there's like, there's challenges with that, um, for sure. Uh, do what we can to, uh, you know, rotate crops, um, have diversity of cover crops, which helps soil quality, um, does a number of different things. Um, but certainly is a, as a, uh, a negative when it comes to, uh, you know, that, that 20 acres of just corn is just corn versus that 20 acres would be Timothy grass and rye grass. And, you know what I mean? Like a, a whole, whole slew of different, uh, uh, um, plants, um, and habitats. Uh, so, <clears throat> you know, I guess to answer the, the, the bigger question, I don't, I don't know how, um, cause I've thought about it a lot here. I don't know how to make the, the land become more. Uh, conservation focused when it comes to species. If I'm also trying to conservation focus for soil quality, mm. right? Like for future generations to make sure that the soil health is up. Cause these are, these things are conflicting. I don't um, think that soil quality would be conflicting with wildlife health personally, it, um, especially in the prairies. Cause that's a big, so when it comes to, uh, I understand our here form of and what you're saying right, right. here, but I don't think, I don't think your farm's the problem. <laughs> so, you know, I think, sure. you know, that. I think you're using a, uh, almost like capitalism as an example to show that these things have to occur. But point being like, I don't, I, the issues here are not your farm. It's the go a little further South than here. And there's so many houses 
really tough to find a place to hunt and the seasons are technically more limited than they probably should be and now those deer are eating all sorts of things that are native and as a result invasive plants are coming up because they're not eating invasive plants and i I, I agree with that i agree which is a different kind of ball game i just want to i think i think i understand what you're using the example i just want to hope you know that i don't think that no no no, of course yeah no (laughs) i don't don't see the way i I guess that's all (laughs) no no, i think what i'm bringing up isn't isn't uh from that perspective because i actually believe in what we're doing i actually think we do a a really uh i would stand behind what we do um, in terms of balancing all of the yeah. things, right? Because there's a hundred things to balance. It's not just, I can't just look at it from one perspective of just this or just that. So I, I feel very good about how we how we balance it. But I guess what I'm saying is there is, it seems like there's an economics problem in the future with carrying capacity. Mm. Like, a, a, um, because, you know, how else can you afford, like I couldn't have afforded, I know, unless you come from money, how else do you afford to buy a farm like this unless you're making it work? Um, so it's like, a, you know, and I'm probably in that mindset of people who wants it to also be, you know, for this and not just a business. Yeah. So how do you make it work for those people and, and do all the things? That's so a tough thing, right? I was, uh, who was I talking with? Um, I was talking with one of the audience members earlier about <clears throat> my fear of, you know, here locally, there's a, a road called Lee Hook Road. It's this very beautiful, um, like two mile, three mile, maybe stretch of, of road that links one side of town to the other. But it's all these uh, legacy farmlands. And it's not, you know, farmland of Kansas. It's farmland of, of Lee, New Hampshire. But they're big, contiguous tracks of of fields and fragmented forests, good browse, life sustaining uh, farmland that eventually will pass to these these people, the owners, uh, kids, and they're all going to become very land rich very quickly and see the value of two and a half acres in this particular part of the world and know what that means. And for me to sit there and look at them in the straight straight in the face, like your land is so valuable to me because of it's intrinsic value and I like to play on it and I like to hunt it versus you just fell into $12 million, bud. And, and how do you reconcile that? And now you have just lost three miles worth of open public land in an already crowded area. So that's kind of where I'm getting to. Yeah. And I think that's my point. Yeah. You know, I, don't, I don't know how to answer the question about it, uh, and maybe there is no answer right now it's just something that I, I think is worth and it's you know talk about hot takes yeah. this is a very uncomfortable question yeah, in our within our own space I because think, we love beating I that R3 drum it. we've already answered it or we're trying to answer it yeah it's called Recovering America's Wildlife Act. That's right. It needs to get passed <laughs> and it's been sitting there for yep. a minute yep and, and yep. what's the slowdown the why, why are we not is the why are we here that there would be a vengeful vote for partisanship politics <laughs> oh, it abs- it's not a think, it's a no. <laughs> so Such an easy so, thing to do so and just make it so. The point being is, to your point of right now, what we're stuck in is for a state of New Hampshire to get more money, we need more license purchases to match to Pittman-Robinson in order to do that. And that could be a really tough squeeze for us to pull off. Uh, 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 RAWA, which is Recovering America's Wildlife Act, which is actually... Uh, an amendment to Pittman-Robinson, most people don't realize this, um, would open up $1.3 billion for species of conservation concern across the country. And it's it's uh, right now the version that would potentially go through is related to legal nexus, uh, primarily around um, damages caused on natural resources. So if 
a lawsuit happened because somebody caused, and this could be anything from a farm to an oil company, um, there would be penalties and fees that would actually fund RAWA. Um, and one of the big things that we suffer in this country is the politics between Pittman Robinson and game species and then the Endangered Species Act. We talked about um, the prairie chicken being uh, banned. And if you go back to the political history of the prairie chicken, it's been a political debate between energy. And the yeah. sad part is, is that the Endangered Species Act is a it's a nuclear bomb. It's not it's mm-hmm. not a it's not a, a precision scalpel. It's a nuke. So point being our system in the United States has not accounted for the in-between. So the concept of funding the in-between through something like RAWA, which is not directly related to license purchases, but is a constant funding, plugs that gap to prevent animals from ever getting to the Endangered Species Act, which satisfies a, you know, a I'm going to say it, a Republican need for the more concept of, of, of energy or what it might be. And at the same token, it uh, also satisfies the need of the lack of funding to prevent these things, whether it's, again, talking about uh, a birds, the sage grouse crisis or um, uh, woodcock or whatever it might be for, for these different aspects. So point being, the solution is potentially there. And people are thinking about this aspect of that if you make it, and I'm going to say something super unpopular, but we all know I'm you're good good for for this. (laughs) Pittman, Robinson, the duck stamp are all products of the New Deal. They're the most socialist policies. For sure. Some of the most socialist policies ever passed in U.S. history. But we asked for it. We did. And they're uh, they're some of the greatest policies. They weren't imposed on. So I think that's Uh, a that's a big difference. They were. Right. Exactly. Meaning the the sportsman said, hey. We, we yep. see a problem, yep. turn of the century, uh, we want to right some wrongs, yes. and we can do that by, by this, doing these and we're things. asking you to pose it on yes, us. Yes, yes. Right. And so, to my point is, is that the American tradition is to actually isolate our environment and wildlife from capitalism. Rawa is one of those things that isolates our environment from capitalism, because making more hunters to get more funding for Pittman Robinson still is capitalism at the end of the day. It is still that what you're talking about, the endless growth. I don't want to make less money than I made the year before. So point is, is that in order for us to be and I don't necessarily even like the word conservation. I don't like the word preservation or conservation. I like the word sustainable. I don't. Con- conservation implies that I'm conserving something for as long as I can. Uh, preservation is like shit; things are going to get bad. Uh, sustainability implies that this is never ending; that I will be able to hunt grouse, or I will be able to hunt white-tailed deer, or I will be able to hunt moose for the rest of my life, and that my great-great-great-grandchildren will have that opportunity. And that's that concept of not about entitlement, but but uh, borrowing or or being a steward or all those different things. And, and I think it's so important that we think about those things right now, because like right now, like, I mean, write your senators. <laughs> that's where it's held up right now is in the Senate yeah. for Rawa. So it's got to go through. The it's Senate on the right doorstep. Now. It is. Uh, it's it's right got to go there. through the Senate right now. If it uh, if the Senate approves this version, it will then go back to the House and be voted and then be signed into law. Um, it has passed both the Senate and House before. Um, this is the third attempt to pass Rawa. Um, and hopefully this is the time that you know matters. I mean, this is when we talk about, um, and that's the other thing about being a hunter or being somebody more importantly that works in the hunting industry. I have profited off of hunting. I absolutely have. I donate my time to the New Hampshire Fishing Game Department mm-hmm. as a commissioner. 
And I think that that is a minimal to what I could do. I have donated my time to market for Rawa. I believe that especially people like me or anybody, we need to do more than we take because that's the whole concept of, of, again, this perpetuity, this sustainability, this going on forever. And, And we need to think about it like that, where it's just like if we rely on if quantity is our game in recruitment, we're done. No. It's game over. Quality. Well, and that's why we we talk about, and I, I I will specifically, especially on this show all the time, and I'll look at people dead in the face and say, just buying your hunting license isn't enough. Doesn't make you conservation. It doesn't make you con. That used to be a, a, a tagline. It used to be a, a sweet bumper sticker, but it, it doesn't hold any water. And the like you said, the min- minimal you can do is is what you do with your time. And I say the minimum minimal people can do is signing up for a conservation organization like the NWTF Absolutely. or pick your Pick your species, have skin in the game because when we talk about all the time of that $35 membership and the people that came in here tonight, uh, new NWTF members were created here tonight. Those dollars get matched on an average of five to one with our organization. I can't speak to the elk people, the ducks or anybody else, but I suspect it's probably roughly the same. And some of the recent partnerships we're looking at 24 to one. That's awesome. That's huge. So after you, after you take care of the membership, you facilitate the cost of that membership and the print stuff and, and any of the, the, the membership benefits and, and what the net is off that $35. That's a, that's a big match at, at just five to one average. Right. So you got to do more and you got to have skin in the game and showing up to events like this, uh, showing up to fundraising banquets and, and whatever else is out there. Uh, and, and, and having membership in it is, is so huge. And I think another point to this, uh, I know I've kind of, uh, I'm notorious for being heavy handed on boomers. So I apologize for that. Um, there are a lot of older people that have put a lot of time and effort into a lot of things over the year and very disheartened because they've been at it for 40 more years than we have 30 more years, 20 more years. Um, I see this particularly on the state level. Um, it is so important for younger people to actually get involved in their local locality. Yeah. Um, it's, um, in there and, and obviously absolutely. If you kill a Turkey, you should be a member of the NWTF. You kill a grouse, be a member of RGS for sure. Uh, you know, like, uh, you kill, you know, whatever it might be, you should be a member. You should be doing your thing. Um, on that aspect. The other thing is though, is that when it comes to the process of your actual state where you live, it is disheartening to see how many young people there are not involved. Oh, man. And I know part of that is just this simple message. You can be involved. Right. <laughs> um, well, you can back to like show up to commission hearings. You can yeah. show up depending on your state, how your state's made up. A lot of states do have commissions. Um, you can go there and you can be involved. And young voices need to be in there. Not just because fresh voices need to be there, but the poor old people who have been sitting there and doing it <laughs> for a minute right. are so disheartened because yeah. they don't think anybody cares. Right. And I understand right. the it's an information gap. I I'm truly believe it's purely an information gap. But whatever state you look in, if you listen to this podcast, literally when you like hit pause at the end of this or you delete this podcast from your downloads or whatever you do, Google... How do I get involved in state fishing game policy? How do I get involved in state rule game, uh, you know, making season date settings, all those things. You should know that. You should show up. Trust me, there are people there that will listen to you. And if they don't show up again, because eventually they'll listen to you. And and (laughs) my God, it, it doesn't take many people. It doesn't. Like seriously, a half a dozen people can make a difference. Absolutely. That's where we're at. And it's like what Daniel said earlier. And it goes back to you don't know what you don't know. 
and it's you're exactly right. It's an information gap. And, you know, look at this. Look at the last political cycle about school boards and and thinking local and acting locally and people getting involved. And, and I'm not getting into politics here, but people made a difference by getting involved at their local level. And that's, you know, you, you, you need to turn off the big news and, and be part of the local news and pick up that free newspaper that gets stuffed in your mailbox, that carriage town, whatever that's free and has a bunch of tow truck advertisements in the back of it. Right. Like <laughs> that's where things are happening and you should be involved at that. Right. Uh, I, I, you're, you're totally right. And that's where people can have an impact. Daniel, I, I want to come back to you and get your your take on the um, the hunter carrying capacity question, because I was really interested to see here uh, your your opinion on that. And it's complicated because I, I routinely hear as somebody who's trying to open the space up more. I, I have a lot of folks who will say to me, dude, we don't need anybody else in the woods. Yeah, it's that double edged sword. That, right. But I'm like, yeah, well, how are you going to fund this whole game, bro? Because we need more we're, we're losing people ultimately um i get most concerned though with the habitat piece as well like where are we going to hunt and just in the short time i've been hunting the amount of land that's been posted around me places that i hunt and now one of my biggest concerns i've been um i just was making an episode up on uh outside of deer isle there on the islands and the drive up the coast the number of solar farms that i'm seeing oh. And, you know, we were like, wow, Maine's got a lot of solar farms now. How much of our energy is coming from solar? Like less than 2%. So where's this headed? Because that's not habitat anymore. If I'm wrong, check me. But isn't some of that going north of the border and then going like as far south as Connecticut? You know, it's not for the environment. For the environment. Um, So what's interesting to me about that is like, for instance, I hunt a farm or I hunted a farm in Saco. Um, every year I'd do the, I'd fill nuisance tags. There was great way to fill my freezer, but they're shifting over to a solar farm Mm -hmm. and they're not going to, they're not allowed under the contract to even have hunters anymore. And how much is this going to grow and expand to where we're, and the, the challenges with this, the way you have conservationists typically is like a, is a euphemism for more right wing and environmentalism is more of a euphemism for more left wing. And, and these two sides view this really differently. And the side that considers themselves environmentalists typically are pretty opposed to hunting, but very open to the idea of more solar farms, more wind farms and all that. So those folks are actively looking to cover the landscape and the stuff, because if you believe things the way they believe them, that makes sense to do. And the challenge is I'm looking at that going like you're trying to, treat climate change by getting rid of habitat they're both like, both sides are, are either, contradictory right? like, to each other yeah but those folks aren't usually connected sure. to the wildlife that lives on the landscape as much as people who mm. tend to call themselves conservationists mm. so i'm hearing a lot about climate as i watch habitat dwindle and that those things should not be in opposition to each other uh so i'm very concerned about where we'll hunt yeah that said you know one of our taglines at wild fed is food is all around you and i'm in this for the food more than more than the quality of the hunt, I'm in, I'm in it for food. And so for me, I think part of it is broadening how we look at the world around us from a food perspective. Cause it's like, for me, when I look at the deer hunt, it's like, sorry guys, this, um, prion disease is going to take a toll on deer hunting. Is there going to be deer hunting in 20 years? Everybody, I, I love it here. It's like, yeah, man, we don't have any chronic wasting disease yet, Yeah. but right. all, you know, you get one dead animal on the landscape and you have a hot zone forever, essentially forever. There. Yeah. I mean, you need a comet impact to get rid of that. So eventually that's going to spread through our herd and people who are d- the diehard venison eaters are going to have to shift focus a little bit. So for me, man, I'm happy to eat cicada grubs 
and fiddleheads <laughs> and dragonflies as much as I'm happy to eat moose, you know? And so it's like in the fisheries, everybody's like, oh, the cod, the cod. And it's like, yeah, but I'll eat dogfish, dude. I'm, I'm dogfish down with good eating. So it's like, I'm looking at, uh, when I look at the food resources, they're there. Yeah. But when I look at the traditional hunter's food resources, they are dwindling and access to them seems to be dwindling. So um, I'm part of my personal mission is pushing a wild foods lifestyle more than just a hunting lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Because when we broaden out to wild foods, suddenly there's a lot more food on the landscape. And each one of those pursuits, my wife and I have as good a time going out picking up acorns as we do going out hunting squirrels and we can do them both together sure. and weave in and out. So that's a big part of it. But yeah, I just want to say again, just reiterate, I'm really concerned about what in, in the quest to curb climate change, how much habitat are we going to give up? Because when I see solar panels made by slave labor, as far as the eye can see, no. I'm like, that cannot be that are, that are going to last eight years before they need to be not sustainable. Or something. It's you like, talk about this is first of all, that's not the answer. And second, where are all the animals that lived there? Right. They're not there now. No. And so that, you know, I think habitat's going to be one of the biggest things, not just recruitment. Yeah. Like people got to have a place to hunt. Um, and I think we need to address that simultaneously with addressing the lack. And of the critters have to have to have a place to live on the on the habitat angle. There is a big push federally. You know this. Uh, habitat is a combatter against climate change. National grasslands, grasslands are one of the biggest stores of you know carbon um, in those grasslands. You know, thinking about the North American Grasslands Act, I assume NWTF is probably signed on onto that because it's part of the whole uh, you know collaboration. But uh, you have the Royal Forestry Market Act, which is also for cutting forests as well as preserving forests, but both of those things to create carbon credits. Um, but point being, all of those things create more habitat to actually combat climate change. And that's one of my biggest things is we're talking about a, a, a culture that's kind of stuck in the past. Embracing climate change is like the greatest path for us to create habitat right now. <laughs> like combating climate change equals habitat creation. And, and, and I think it's important that we think it. And the other thing on your thing, I think what you bring to the table, and I think this is so important, is the intimacy of understanding other things in the landscape and how much that makes you uh, under biodiversity. You know, like understanding like that, you know, monarch butterfly that comes through and what that milkweed means to mm -hmm. you. Yeah, you know, exactly. Like, <laughs> so point being, like, you don't see that as just a deer hunter. You don't, you know, like, that's why I always say the best hunters I ever know are trappers. Yeah, then you and I have had that conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I best learned, I learned more about deer hunting, yeah. uh, trapping, than I ever did Absolutely. sitting in a tree stand. Yeah, and yeah. that's that aspect of just understanding that nature's not deer. It's mm. those, you know, I mean, I'm fascinated by the things because it's like, if, I, if we go out and collect fiddleheads, we're good. But if we're going to go out and collect something else, we're all dead. You know, so. <laughs> em, you've been quiet. What's your what's your take on all this? Um, so I actually kind of piggybacking on all of you guys is I'm coming at it from also a woman in the industry. Mm -hmm. of like women trying to get other women in the industry big time, too. So that's a really interesting aspect of women hunters are growing rapidly across the country um and it is the fastest growing demographic which is amazing and to see that kind of shift in that women can provide 
for the household, for the home, for the for the table is is pretty a pretty empowering feeling, I think. Um, but with that comes a lot of challenges too, and. I think you were kind of tiptoeing a little bit around it about with like social media and pre- like different products and it's being sexualized to be honest. And that's really hard as a woman in the industry too, to be like, ah. <laughs> we're not all like that. And that's, you know, <laughs> honestly, I Women are the fastest growing demographic. we're going to need to up the pink pre- camo. Pre- big time. <laughs> Free social media. I bet you huh. still yeah. worse. Which right. is still kind of to my point is that at least now there's an opportunity to call it out. Yeah. And, and, and people are, and other companies are, which is which is great. Um, but then sometimes I know you don't always like know where you stand in in the in the chaos as a woman in the industry. And I think I live in a pretty rural but growing dramatically area in Maine that everyone there's a lot of it's all private land and getting developed by the day and like so speaking on somewhere to hunt it's like i'm lucky i have a piece of private land to hunt on that i will not have forever i already know that because i can't afford it because it needs to make money so it needs to have houses built on it in order for the owner to be able to survive and then pass the money on to their kids or what it's that evil cycle and um Evil to us, let's face it. It's right. not evil yeah. to them. Well, they're, right. they're, they're pretty this, happy when a, the until payday the, comes. Until the planet comes and just kills us all. But. Right. <laughs> and it is a funny <laughs> thing. But when you're, and also people trying to get into the industry and wanting hunting men and women, you know, they're like, oh, can I come hunting with you? And you're like, well, well yes. But then like you're giving up a spot or like it's this weird like I really want them to get into hunting, but I don't want them to wear a blindfold So I, I will I will speak uh, the I'll fly the New Hampshire flag. We have we boast a great many of uh, public hunting places which you can download uh, topo maps on. So anytime someone asks me That's um, Connor <laughs> Farm, Exeter, New Hampshire is a fantastic place to learn to <laughs> pheasant hunt and and uh, deer hunt, <laughs> and that's where they'll always go. Well, and there are four hundred acres of of vast wilderness. And and Maine has lots of wildlife management areas that are open to the public. Yeah. And um, North Maine Woods is like an amazing resource for everybody to pay a fee and to explore. And um, but it's a it's an interesting yeah. like moral di- dilemma. I think a little bit of um, the flip side of that, like. I've brought some friends out hunting for the first time this year and the most rewarding feeling to watch them succeed. And even if it's in my spot, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but, but I could, you know, that's irreplaceable, that feeling and to know that they're now capable of doing it on their own too. So it's, it's not, it's not a question (laughs) I expect to have answered. I just, I, I do enjoy the, the banter around it and the the deep thinking that comes with it. And, and every time I ask the question, I, 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 it starts off kind of the same for people, but it, it inevitably I get different answers, which I love because it helps me come to a different uh, reconciling of it. Um, Cause normally when I ask it, it's like Fred's being negative again. He's being a Eeyore about this discourse. <laughs> um, 
But it's good. So we got a, a few minutes left. Uh, I'll go around the table here for some parting thoughts. Anything you want to put out there? And then um, Carter's going to award some prizes for the night, I believe. So, And, and then Brian wants to go to bed and kick us out of his house. So I'll start. I'll start. <laughs> they are good odds. I have actually the little kids have been running back and forth with a pen. So we all might have been outbid. Uh, Brian, I'll start with you. Thank you uh, once again for having us and hosting this here tonight. Yeah, of course. Um, so I guess I'm just giving random. Whatever you want to whatever's on your mind. What do you what do you think? What, what's the future? Are we are we doomed? Are we is life going to be good? Both. No, very good. <laughs> I don't. I have no idea. I have no idea. I just know you should drink whiskey. There it is. That's, a, <laughs> that's all I got. Tax free, right here. <laughs> mm-hmm. No. Um. Uh, this was fun. Uh, it's really cool to hear uh, what what everyone has to say. It's like a, a, everyone's kind of coming at this from a from a different angle. Um. And it was. Uh, uh, I heard some things tonight that I don't think I had thought about in in the same way that it was talked about. I think that like I'd kind of been on the edge of it, but never, never heard it put that way. So it was, uh, this is super valuable to me. I hope it was for everyone else. Yeah. 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 Thanks for the venue tonight. Um, yeah. I just want to echo what you said. Um, it's really easy. Well, you keep bringing up social media. It's like you get in your echo chamber and not, I don't mean that in a negative way. Each one of you's got perspectives that I don't typically think about. So it's been really refreshing tonight. I'm kind of get stuck in my own way of viewing it. Um, I think we're in a really rare moment in history right now in some ways like something that's never happened before and in some ways something that's cyclical but like when all the boundaries loosen for a minute everything's kind of willy-nilly it's like a type of chaos and that's a time to reestablish new order and even though we all have different perspectives we all kind of represent different camps in in the world of hunting ultimately all want something very similar yeah. and so i just think this is an important time to do the work we're doing because it is a time of chaos and eventually that'll smooth out. And we want to make sure at the end of that, we still have this opportunity, right? Birth, right? Whatever you want to call this like thing that we do, this human inheritance. Cause what we didn't talk about today is all the ways we could easily lose it. Sure. There's like a 50 different ways we could lose it pretty fast. Easy. So it's really important that we keep doing our work, even if it's siloed a little bit, because I think at the end we'll come through and be mm. like, Phew, good thing during that period of time. <laughs> yeah. We made sure not to lose that really, really important thing that we have. Yeah. And part of it's passing it on and part of it's making sure there's enough habitat and part of it's making sure there's animals and part of it's bringing out new people. And 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 honestly, you can only do like one. You, you can only do so much. So we all just keep doing our thing. But this is an important time to be doing this thing, I think. For sure. Man, my parting thought would be about younger people. And I say younger people, like 45 and under, which isn't that young, I guess, anymore, but um, still in. Yeah. yeah. Same. I'll take it. <laughs> um, you know, the energy that we see on social media, I, I, first of all, I hope that people don't confuse the hunting industry uh, as being some new phenomenon around things that we don't like. I, I assure you that before social media existed, it was worse. <laughs> um, uh, but if we brought the energy for younger people to our state levels into our nonprofits, um, and you know, maybe some nonprofits might not appreciate this, but if you don't agree with whatever nonprofit it is, that's your hunting vibe, bring your social discourse there because that's what, <laughs> mm. 
that activism, you don't have to agree and you can proactively disagree and still be involved. And I think that that's important. Um, if some nonprofits pissed you off and you paid you 35 bucks, still pay your 35 bucks and let them know you pissed you off. And don't no. be quiet about it. If your state agency did something that you don't like or your state agency isn't thinking about things. And this is the biggest thing on the state level that I will say is that they <laughs> there are things that they just don't do because they don't know anybody cares and they don't have enough time to even think that that thing mattered. So point being, bring your discourse to your local level, bring your discourse to your nonprofit and use that energy to do something about it. Don't just, you know, like posting pictures is great. Keep doing all that fun stuff that, you know, we want to do. But like um, affect change, learn the things that affect what you what it is that you love. And also uh, be mindful of the people around you that might be immediately adjacent to you. And and I'll say this because we all know that uh, my political affiliation is sometimes the firecracker of me. I don't care what side of the spectrum you're on, but like more young people involved is the best thing that could happen mm -hmm. to hunting in places where those things matter, meaning legislation, state agencies, federal levels, and nonprofits. Bring that energy, bring your thoughts, both sides of the table. It needs that invigoration. So Awesome. Yep, you're exactly right. And to your point with the, the, the organizations, uh, those are run and funded by their membership. Yep. So absolutely. Your voice matters and, yeah. and it should be. And even if you disagree no. for five seconds, yeah. don't like the way direction. That's not a reason. Feedback, man. It's not a reason. Need it. That's how we grow. Keep, beat, keep paying your money and beating your drum. NWTF <laughs> uh, would not be 50 years old uh, next March without the feedback from its, its membership. Yeah. So, yeah. Emily. Um, no, this was a blast. And I, I think like we've all said, kind of taken away a lot of new perspectives that I think refreshing and I'll be honest I'm really excited to see what dozen people we create of what you guys are talking about of <laughs> like it's our like duty to create more of us and to bring them out into the industry with us however that looks like from all of our different angles it's good stuff I appreciate the conversation I absolutely thrive on this I love sitting at a table in front of people and not through a zoom chat. I mean, it's effective for me for what I do, but if, um, if we did this more and more on just a basic human level, we'd be better off. But in, in our niche and in, in the hunting space and the conservation space, the, um, things, things could get hashed out a whole lot better and we could, we could be very productive. So, um, if you're listening to this and, and, you, you are so inspired. Grab some folks and sit around a table and drink good whiskey and solve some problems. Amen. Yeah, indeed. Specifically from here. The Strong Flag Hill uh, in Lee, New Hampshire. Uh, shipping and they are across uh, multiple states as well. So you can Thank find you their for products. Having us. Thank you again, Brian. Daniel, AJ, Emily for coming and uh, thank you all for listening. And thank you to those who, who came tonight. We appreciate you. And now Carter Heath, regional director. Thanks, Fred. Yeah, for sure. Uh, would like to award some prizes. Uh, thanks to the guests uh, for, for coming down. Some of them folks had to travel a couple hours. Uh, Daniel and Emily specifically uh, drove from uh, up north in Maine. Uh, but I hope you enjoyed that. It was it was an intimate affair. Um the people that attended really enjoyed it. Uh, it was a fun experience. We had some 
new new members created out of that event. Um, and in some of the new folks uh, hearing some of these ideas for the first time, it was it was cool to have conversation off air uh, after after the conversation was done and, uh, you know, get a kind of a new person's perspective uh, as far as problem solving, as, pro- as far as how can how can we use the land and how can all stakeholders come together to to balance this out and um it was really it was really inspirational it was really cool and uh i think the big takeaway from this is you know as as aj kept pounding the 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 proverbial table there um is that is that discourse and being able to sit down and not not be so uh locked into camps and, and to be able to have conversations and, you know, work together for all this. We, we all seem to have the same goal in mind. Uh, let's, let's get there. But, uh, that was a whole lot of fun and, uh, I really hope to do it again. And I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. Uh, you can go on to the socials, uh, find all those folks there, give them a follow, um, engage with them, ask them questions. I'm sure, you know, Daniel and and AJ love to talk about this stuff. Emily too. Um, You can learn about uh, spirits and winemaking from Brian as well. So uh, it is the holiday season guys. So there is a lot going on internally here and a big push towards convention. Believe it or not, we are less than three months away as this podcast drops. So housekeeping items, uh, Check out shop.nwtf.org. We got some cool new items up there. Uh, There's gift cards, accessories, whole bunch of stuff. You hear it in the promos throughout the show, beginning and in the middle. Uh, Check stuff out. There's some there's some good stuff coming uh, that that is on there now that you can get in time for Christmas. Those gift cards are great. Uh, you can pass those on to to anybody. And NWTF membership makes a great stocking stuffer. Consider doing that. Uh, NWTF.org. You can you can gift a membership. What else? We have our 50th anniversary coming up, and we've got the commemorative tumbler. So uh, for that, uh, if you if you spend fifty dollars, you can get the uh, the big frig tumbler from our partners over at big frig the commemorative cup that comes with a membership so if you're looking to do a, a twofer you want to get a, a nice item that you can put in a stocking or put under the tree or where, whatever your gift giving uh, pleasures are uh, that comes with a membership you can go on and do that um, so some some pretty good ideas uh, abound there now uh, I mentioned convention so things are coming together guys in a big way and very soon, very, very soon here in the near future, registration will open for events and for the show itself. Now, it's important to to articulate here when you register uh, for the convention, you're registering for that part of the experience, right? So that's the events, that's the dinners, the auctions, that's the entertainment, um, the stuff that's happening at night. That's the convention part, part the sports show, not to be confused with the the the, the floor show uh, that everyone likes to go out, see their their favorite outdoor celebs, uh, go buy some gear, get new turkey hunting gear, see the new stuff for for 2023 and, and beyond. Uh, you will get that separately. So be on the lookout. Keep up with us. Again, I say it every every time we drop one of these, follow us socially. The most up-to-date information is being put out in real time uh, about about convention as we can put as we can release information as things are coming together. Uh, as I understand it, the the hotel I believe is sold out. 
So if you're coming and you have not made those arrangements, there are satellite hotels that are working with us. You can find that on our website. Again, that's nwtf.org. Go to the convention page. Uh, you can find associated hotels. It's going to be hard to get to. So uh, you want to get on that now, especially if you're planning to come to, uh, to Nashville and, and, and hang out with us. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, it's going to be well attended. <laughs> so uh, look out for the announcements on convention as uh, as we move forward and and keep in mind what you're what you're registering for. You know, read read the print. You're registering for the convention or are you registering to go on the show floor and 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 do as I just said. So you'll want to register for both and, and be able to get, you know, get in line, just go in and you can do all that ahead of a, ahead of time. And uh, I know our planning teams uh, appreciate that as well so so take the time to uh to go on there check out what we got to offer and uh and be involved and join us that is it guys that's it for this week thanks again for hanging uh we're marching towards the new year we're marching towards our our 50th anniversary whole lot of good stuff coming do stay engaged with us uh check us out on youtube uh more great content being put up there in that super fast growing community i'd love for you to be a part of it hit the subscribe button and likewise with this program here subscribe and follow where available on all podcasting platforms share with your friends and family help us beat the algorithmic overlords of uh apple spotify <laughs> and all those i say that in jest it helps the more you rate and interact with us, the more we are able to be found. Uh, as it is right now, we trend very well. France, Australia, England, and uh, and Canada. So uh, in the North America, uh, well, uh, lower 48 are coming around as well on a consistent basis. So I appreciate the support and you guys sharing the stories we share here. So uh, as always, take care of each other. I hope your seasons as they wrap up are, are fruitful. Get home safe to your loved ones. Take care of each other. Uh, love each other. And we will see you next time. Thanks. Some say a silenced gunshot is the baddest sound out there. At Silencer Central, we have another favorite. It's the sound of silence delivered to your front door. When you buy from Silencer Central, we handle your application, set you up with a free NFA gun trust, and deliver your silencer straight to you. With an average 90-day turnaround time when you use eForms, buying a silencer is simpler than ever. Visit silencercentral.com and we'll help you get started. Under the visionary leadership of founder Johnny Morris, Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's is leading North America's largest conservation movement. Their partnership with the National Wild Turkey Federation is a match made in heaven for hunters across America. The Save the Habitat, Save the Hunt initiative continues to be a resounding success, with more than $6 million provided for conserving wildlife habitat, recruiting more hunters, and opening more access to hundreds of thousands of acres across the nation. To learn more, go to BassPro.com conservation. Have you been to shop.nwtf.org yet? Well, if not, I invite you to go there now. Again, that's shop.nwtf.org for all the latest and greatest NWTF lifestyle gear. Need a trucker cap? We got you covered. Need a low pro hat? We got you covered there. Guys gear, ladies gear, kids gear, accessories for the pool, for the backyard, for hunting, camping. We got you all there. Shop.nwtf.org. Go there today and get your latest NWTF gear.